You're listening to the Elephant in the Room Property Podcast, where the big things that never get talked about actually get talked about. I'm Veronica Morgan, real estate agent, buyer's agent and co-host of Fox Hills Location, Location, Location Australia. And I'm Chris Bates, financial planner, mortgage broker and wealth coach. And together, we're going to uncover who's really making the decisions when you buy a property. Veronica will introduce our guest in a moment and I can tell you that you'll want to listen on because we had a very interesting conversation. We talked about, you know, country auctions. We talked about technology and how it's changing the way that consumers can get much more transparency from real estate agents. And we finished with, are women better agents? So the consumers have been asking for a long time for us to be more transparent. They want to have more control in the process. Um, And we went live with a new website yesterday that very much puts the buyers in the box seat. Please stick around for this week's Elephant Rider Bootcamp. And we have a cracking Dumbo of the Week coming up. Before we get started, everything we talk about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent. They will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances. Now let's get cracking. In this episode, we pick the brains of Kylie Walsh, who in November last year was awarded the title of the AREA, Most Influential Woman in Real Estate. Kylie is General Manager of Dye Jones Real Estate and a licensed real estate agent herself with over 24 years experience. And over that time, she's held a variety of roles that have taken her from the beach to the bush and back to the city in positions of increasing responsibility. She's worked in management roles for Australia's major franchise groups and along the way has won numerous industry awards for sales, property management and leadership. And she's also served a term on the REI New South Wales board. And given your recent award... We like to explore what it takes to be influential in the real estate industry and are there differences that men and women bring to the table and why does this even matter to property buyers? But I might even turn this into a personal mentoring session as I think that being the most influential woman in real estate is something I should aspire to. Anyway, thank you for joining us, Kylie. (laughs) You too, Chris. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Kylie. Great to be here. Um, So, I mean, you know, there's many industries that are quite male-dominated and, you know, a boys' club. Have you ever felt that the real estate industry is a boys' club? Look, I've been incredibly lucky during the course of my career. I think it was how I was raised as well by my parents is that you just have a red hot crack. Um, And I've probably always been pretty authentic in my delivery. I'm very black and white. And I think the men that I've worked with and the companies I've worked with have known that. But I can honestly say that I have not experienced that. Yeah. Okay. And so why do you think that there's a most influential woman, but then there's not like most influential male Kind of awards. awards. Yeah, interesting. So I actually brought that up in my interview, which I thought may not go so well for me um, because I'm not a big burn the bra kind of person. And I do think sometimes we we damage um, that for women in real estate by being more around um, having events and awards such as this. But unfortunately, not everyone is as strong a person as I am and hasn't probably been as blessed as I have been with my career and my upbringing. And I think for those that don't have the voice is that until we do have um, equal pay rights, for example, I still think we've got a long way to go for that, that we do need to support those with a minority voice. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and that will happen. It will happen shortly. We've come a long way, particularly in the last 10 years, mm-hmm. but there's still a way to go. And as I said, um, not everybody is as probably vocal as I am and as strong as I am. So if I can make a change for, for women in real estate and professionals in real estate, then I'm up for it. And so what were the reasons why you won the award? Was it and when you say you're very vocal, how are you vocal, I guess, out there in the industry? I, I'm just very curious. Yeah, look, I didn't actually know I was nominated for the awards because my marketing team know that I'm kind of a little bit anti the Women in Real Estate campaign. So it was quite ironic. Um, so they they nominated me and, and then after I was presented with the award, I actually went up to the judges and I'm like, why me? Because there were so many other amazing women in that category. Mm. And they said, Kylie, I think it's what you do behind the scenes and you're not so so vocal about it and, and do a lot of press on yourself for it. So I do a lot of lobbying. Um, and uh, also over the last probably two years, I've done um, some talks at Parliament House and I've worked quietly behind the scenes with mentoring, coaching, um, reworking CPD legislation. Mm-hmm. And um, I think because I've been fortunate enough to work in the city, and also regional areas across Australia, is um, I'm really proud of the fact that I've had yeah. an impact on all professionals in, in real estate's career at some stage. Mm-hmm. And I probably haven't been good at voicing that myself, but just get on with it behind the scenes. Yeah, yeah there's mate. not many people that actually do understand the city markets and the country markets. And so where does that come from? Where did that experience come from? 
Look, I think um, I grew up in the country. Um, I'm from Narrabri. And when I finished school, I wanted to do was get to Sydney. So I came to Sydney, started my real estate career in Sydney, then saw an opportunity uh, back in Tamworth, which is where I went to boarding school, um, learned a lot about auction in the city and thought, great, I can see a real opportunity here um, to be transparent, be a market leader, um, reduce days on market in a local area and uh, didn't know any better. I was 21, uh, mm. had enough money just to pay the stamp duty and the legals and, and went for it. How did it go? <laughs> exactly, yeah. It was great. So we were... Um, what like, year are we talking? I mean, no, that's probably too, too much information. No, <laughs> rough, rough decades. <laughs> all good, all good. So look, it, it was... Um, it was the early 90s. Early 90s. And um, we started with myself, a receptionist and a property manager like most stories, and, the, and then we grew to be the number three office in the country. Okay. Um, and, when I, and when I sold out, I was the number one regional principal for Australia and New Zealand and Tassie, so it was pretty cool. Wow, that's quite an, an accolade. So what were the challenges in getting auctions accepted in the country and lowering days on market and all those sorts of things? How did you do it? I think it was our competitors that were that were really scared about, okay, who's this person that's come back that's full of energy that um, just wants to give it a crack? And back then you couldn't get an auctioneer in a regional area. So I used to fly somebody up um, from Sydney that I had a contact with because there was just no good residential auctioneers. There was all the, you know, the cow cockies, um, stock and station agents. Yeah, but it was, yeah. as you know, it's a very different, different knack. They're great at what they do, but for residential real estate's very different. Um, and as I said, I didn't know any better. I just had all this energy and, and passion. And I was like, this is 120 days, days on market from a cash flow perspective, getting into a business. This is crazy. Like we need to reduce the days on market, create some urgency for both the vendor and the buyer and be trans more transparent in our dealings. So you've got you know, established people there, this little office, and you've come in and you've disrupted everything and you've won market share kind of stop, you know, you've kind of killed it, I guess. And they've, I mean, in real real estate kind of here, you know, you find that in certain patches that there's usually a couple of key leaders that are selling kind of 70, 80% of the property. What's your view on, you know, how easy is it for new agents to kind of come in and dislodge them um, over the space of a few years by just getting a few runs on the board? Yeah, I think it's really easy. So um, I've just gone through this in the last couple of days with some new starters in my team um, in Paddington, which is one of the most affluent areas in the country. And I said, this is the time, you know, high performing agents are complacent. Everyone's all down in the in the dumps about the market. Um, this is your time to come in, show a bit of um, passion, enthusiasm. People don't want you sitting in their lounge room, slapping them around, being all do doom and gloom. Come <laughs> to them with solutions, a fresh approach. And I said, passion and enthusiasm every day of the week when you first start out will win you business. You just have to believe in yourself and back it up and deliver on what you say you're going to do. So I think it's a really exciting time for disruption with with new agents or people that are doing it a bit differently. And how do you how would you coach that? agent though, because, you know, the person selling the property, you know, they've got a few biases. They're just looking at the billboards around the area and they see that, you know, Johnny and Matt have sold 80% of the properties. And then you've got, you know, this new young agent coming in. How do you kind of coach them to, to kind of prove that they're better, I guess, or they're a better choice than that agent? Yeah. So for us at the moment, we're focusing on, on buyer communication and buyer relationships. And I think um, what we can demonstrate to clients in our local market is now the distribution of our network is where buyers are coming to and from is how we've built our network, particularly in the last three to five years. And I think that compelling evidence as to what we can show vendors and what that means they're going to get for their end result. And in a time frame, um, I think that speaks for itself. Mm -hmm. And then I think the other side of things is, is obviously if someone is green, then we need to take a, an agent in that is better at negotiation. So um, all our new guys are, are trained in such a manner that they're all great with buyer nurturing and communication to try and get that buyer to be honest with us. And it's a very hard thing when agents are so low down on the food chain. Um, <laughs> but we, we train our guys around buyer meetings like we do vendor meetings. And if we've got a better relationship, we, we know where they're at and we can help them all with their finance. And that allows us to get them up in price as well if we need to do the best thing for our clients. Um, because with interest rates the way, the way they are, and then you've got the media talking doom and gloom, I think it's a great time to get in and have a red hot crack, particularly in the markets that we're in, because um, popular marketplaces that are close to the city will always be popular. And um, I think there's, ne there's never a bad time to buy in those areas because they're always stable and they only go down so far. Yeah. I mean, and just for our listeners, can you just enlighten them on where exactly your offices are? Because, you know, I think that's a good point, right? So it's a great time to enter the market 
as long as you're buying in these amazing suburbs, where are kind of where you're talking? Yeah, so existing networks, we cover the eastern suburbs in a city, North Shore, northern suburbs and the southern highlands. And from next month, we will also do the lower North Shore, so Mossman, Neutral Bay, uh, Northbridge and Chatswood. Wow. That's, um, and when we say next month, I have to say, listeners, we record this and then we may hold on to it for a little while before we, we launch the episode, only because we schedule them and move them around a bit. So we're recording this in January 2019. We'll try to get this to air as soon as possible, but you're saying in February 2019, there's a big announcement. Yeah, so from February 1, um, the previous McGrath Lower North Shore officers, who's the McGrath number one um, operator, will do- join Dietones. Oh, wow. Okay. Well, that's a big bit of a coup, isn't it? Yeah, it's fantastic. So um, two businesses coming together, um, same sort of sales turnover for our group and their group last year, but we've just ran the numbers at our kickstart and it'll make us the largest sales business in New South Wales for volume and turnover. Wow. And so, you know, your top dog... I guess, or cat at uh, McGrath. <laughs> and um, yeah, I mean, so why would you, why would you upset the kettle? I guess, why would you, why would you jump ship when you're, when you're the top of the tree? Look, I think um, the attraction for the McGrath Lower North Shore Group to come to Di Jones was that we're very agile. What we're doing with technology at the moment is really exciting. We're responding quickly. We did a big project at the end of last year, um, which I spoke on at a business conference in Queensland around what we're doing with CX and uh, what that means for the consumer. Consumer has been asking it for a very long time. Consumer experience. Yes, Yes. sorry. Yes, sorry. Um, (laughs) So the consumers have been asking for a long time for us to be more transparent. They want to have more control in the process. Um, And we went live with a new website yesterday. It very much puts the buyers in the box seat and we're the first uh, real estate professional in the country to do it. So it's really exciting. How does this work? Tell us. So um, on the home screen, the buyer actually logs in and if someone's sitting at home and think, I'm thinking about selling but I don't actually want to talk to a real estate agent, um, which being married to a lawyer I know comes up a lot around a dinner table, um, they don't really <laughs> want to engage with an yeah. agent unless they have to. So they can log in and find out how many people we've currently got in our database. So they log into our database and they find out how many buyers are currently sitting in our database, qualified, ready to go, looking for a property like theirs. Wow. That's pretty interesting because I know a lot of databases are full of crap, as in just volume and they haven't been kept up to date and, you know, and the information, you know, is dubious at best. But you're relying on buyers also to put that information in there, I presume. How does that all work? Look, we, um, I started at Dye Jones in 2014 and since that time and when our CEO, Robert Ward, came in um, in 2016, our key focus has been on cleaning up that database because we knew that this was the end game. Um, yeah. within three to four years to launch this website and we had to had to be organised. So we we have a full-time database manager who works on, on cleansing the data when new agents come in mm-hmm. and we have a collaborative approach whereby we only have one database. It's in all our employment agreements and we are very, very firm on what, on what goes in. So you've, you said that the reason you're doing that is because a lot of people, uh, a lot of your customers or your buyers want more transparency and they go, well, that's great. So now they know... Die Jones have got, you know, 40 qualified, pre-approved buyers that are looking to buy under $2 million houses. Can they find that type of detail information? 500%. Yep. When when does the transparency stop though? Because, you know, the whole game of real estate is to kind of a little bit to not let too much transparency out because then you don't have urgency and then you don't have <laughs> bidders. So when are you going to kind of say, well, that's it, you've got enough now. Um, we're not going to tell you how many people have made offers or how many people have got contracts or how many people that, uh, what are the offers? Is, there gonna, is that all going to be online or is that? I think you're a step ahead there, Chris. This is really just potential vendors dipping their toe in the water, seeing are there really buyers out there interested in my type of property that I have? And if so, does Di Jones really have them, um, have access to them? They haven't listed yet, right? So oh. you're thinking when they've listed. Is, is that correct? Yeah, no. So this is this is prior. This is exactly yeah. right. Yeah. So we did a big project last year that we called Project Bermuda, where we surveyed Ooh, a thousand code names. Yeah, a thousand <laughs> um, a thousand purchases out in the marketplace and potential vendors around what frustrated them. We monitored inquiry response times, what they really want from an agent, what they believe that it, to be true when we're actually talking to them and what they think mm. that we fluff. And one of the big things that came out of that was people going and sitting in lounge rooms saying, we've got X, Y and Z um, amount of buyers on our database. And there is a lot of groups that do that. They oh, go in yes, and say, heard it. <laughs> we've got 300,000 people on our database. Yep. And, you know, they might be a franchise group, for example. And, you know, I know from being in franchise, 
franchising, they don't share databases. Exactly. Um, so I think there's a lot of myth around it and the consumer's actually starting to know that. So for, for us, it was about being transparent. It's live data, so it changes. You know, if there's another buyer that goes in while you're actually in there looking, mm. the numbers the numbers will go up. Um, and then stage two is is around what, what else can happen in the database. So mm. I'll come back in six months and talk to you about what's next. Yeah, because this is all, I guess, using AI and, you know, this is, everyone's talking about, you know, what's going to happen in real estate and how will technology disrupt? And I guess this is an indication of what can happen there. And obviously you've got a powerful thing and that is a database. And this is how to use a database. One other franchise group, um, you know, who shall remain nameless, is is using their database to try to create a new business arm, you know, and it makes sense. You know, you've got all these people, right, in there. Let's, how can we milk it? And they're talking about basically, it's a bit the same as in restaurant industry, nose to tail dining. You know, I want to own that buyer for their entire property ownership journey, which is from a business point of view, smart, from a consumer's point of view, alarming, you know, and yeah. I think consumers need to be aware that this sort of, you know, approaches out there. How does this maybe fit in or differ from that? So look, I think um, our database isn't around being big brother or, you know, following them around the, the net or anything like that. It, it is actually about how can we keep that relationship, stay relevant um, and be more trust, trustworthy. And I keep coming back to the word of transparency. If we do our job and we are transparent and we create that trust and we're doing buyer meetings like we are mm. doing our vendor meetings, then we will keep them for finance and insurance and other and other tag-alongs like that. But I, I don't think that, um, you know, we should just dictate that or reserve that right. That that comes from credibility and relationships. And, and we've just found from our consumers, because we do a lot of analytics on our database, that if we deal with our clients three times, they will never leave leave us. And be that property management, finance or sales. So that's... Uh, why we've grown our network like we have, because we find that our buyers and vendors never leave that migration data of where our offices are to and from. Seldom, unless they get transferred overseas or to another state, someone might go from the northern suburbs up the North Shore line to Warunga, sell at Warunga, come down to Willoughby, leave Willoughby, come to Paddington, mm. sell in Paddington, come back to inner city, and so it so so it goes. Mm. You, so. It's interesting because, you know, you're a real estate company, but now you're kind of kind of taking on the banking model. So the banking model is, you know, let's let's sell them products and uh and then sell them more products and then the more products they've got, they won't they won't they're less likely to leave us because, you know, the more that you invest in a company. So, you know, the bank banking model is basically give them a credit, give them a bank account, and then as soon as they've got a bank account, they've got about 50% chance that they'll leave. But if you give them a credit card, that drops to 10%. But then if they take out some home and contents insurance, it drops to 5%. And if they take out some financial advice or get some insurance, they drop to 1%. So do you see uh, that? I don't agree with that, to be honest with you. I don't I don't think we're going down a banking model at all. I'd liken it to, um, I suppose, a medical journey that I've had in the last couple of years. And I go to the Mata, for example, mm. in North Sydney for all my services. I go there because I get a good service, not because they're flogging me things. Mm. And for us, it's around what are the three service models that we can provide you that add value and transparency that you don't want to leave us. It's not about flogging products. That's not our model at all. Yeah. I just think it's kind of like in terms of not only we're doing real estate, but now we're doing insurance and we're doing loans and we're doing, you know, et cetera. Like, is that kind of the. I I don't like, it's not, they're not our own independently owned and operated businesses. It's about providing a service. So we had a client night the other night at Warunga, for example, and one of our investors didn't realise that um, the different options that were available to him for an offset account. And mm. we saved him 17 grand a year. Now we just referred him to our preferred partner. We don't right. own that company, mm. but we've provided a service whereby we've added value. He saved money. And like, that's one, t- one touch point. He will never leave us because yeah. of that value. I don't think we do enough of that in our industry. I don't, yeah, yeah I, I agree. I, I agree. I mean, that's the opportunity, right? The opportunity is to be that trusted advisor at the first point of call, identify all their needs and everything they need to be thinking about. And then either, whether you're doing it in-house or doing it with referral partners. It's irrelevant, know, you, right? It's you just providing to, service you and being be trusted because there's so many cowboys out there in our, our industry. Yeah. And, um, and cowgirls. I, and cowgirls, yeah. Yeah, Cow people. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, because it's, you know, it, it, back to the, the women thing, right? I went to the Women in Real Estate Conference last year and, I'm, in fact, I'm speaking at it this year. So it's in, when is it? March or April? March, <laughs> I should know. I, think, I yeah. check my diary. So I'm going to be talking at it this year, um, which is great. And uh, uh, you may be too. I'm, are you? Yeah. Okay. Um, Leanne Pilkington, who's the president uh, of the REI, she, uh, REI New South Wales, I should say, she got up and gave a bit of a 
talk about, you know, she's never really been a champion of, of women's rights or women's um, uh, opportunity or, you know, beyond just generally opportunity and professional, that professionalism in the industry because she herself hadn't been disadvantaged because she's a bolshy woman. I've known Le- Leanne for many, many years. And, um, and I've often felt the same thing, in fact, because I thought, oh, God, get over yourselves, really. But like what you were saying, not everyone is given those opportunities in, at birth, really. I mean, my personality and my voice was given to me at birth. And so was Leanne's and no doubt so was yours. And not everyone's had the same opportunity to actually be a voice and have a voice. And I think it's really great that women like you and Leanne and me even are recognising that we've been blessed and to help others who may not be so blessed, but there's going to be men in that. Um, Absolutely. In that basket as well. So Leanne started this catch up with the property girls some years ago. I went to the inaugural one and I remember I was actually facilitating a group and chatting to some women there who were saying that, oh no, it's an absolute boys club. I was speaking to one young woman, for instance, who's really, really passionate about her career in real estate. And she was saying that in her area, not one principal was a woman. And I was really amazed by that because when I joined real estate, I actually joined Sarah Lorden Real Estate all the years ago and it was a full old woman office. We only ever had one guy at a time working there when I was there, not through design. It's just most guys weren't brave enough to come. But, you know, and so I, I personally had never experienced a situation where it was a boys club and I was locked out of anything. So it's just an interesting because I think that's still the case and I think that affects a lot of buyers in certain areas, don't you think? Yeah, I, I agree totally. I think... Um, I think buyers just need to feel comfortable with the agent that we're with, that they're with. And I think also that um, given that, and, and look, I don't know if this is still a number, it used to get bantered a lot, 86% of all purchasing decisions were made by women. I don't know, is that still, has there been any new research done on that? No, not not to my knowledge. And it's all, how do you measure that either? I mean, it's I like just because you've got the, even at auction you see it and it might be the guy, might be the alpha male and he might be the one doing the bidding and then at the back of it, you know, you've got her pulling on his on his jacket or something. So I think certainly from an emotive point of view bidding, that if, keep bidding, you know. if, she, if she wants it, mm. then often you'll you'll see people go higher. But I, I do think if that if that trust is there, and I, I must admit I have been able to see a lot of women get that extra bit of money from the female buyer, if it's a couple buying, particularly in auction conditions, mm. um, because of that connection, and they and they bring it back with the rapport to you know the children, great backyard or whatever, or this will be easier with your lifestyle, and to to have that whether it be male or female, and, and get that extra emotion out to get the buyer to go more is obviously what the vendor wants, and I'm I must just say I'm not being sexist. I've just seen women on an auction floor in particular be able to do that in a more trustworthy and natural way um, in a lot of occasions. Not taking away from a lot of men that are great on the auction floor, but um, it does seem to come a lot more natural to good female auction agents on the floor doing work. Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think it's even interesting that both parties are getting mentioned here, like the, in in the decision, because, you know, a lot of the time, sometimes you're, you're dealing with one party. So you're, who's, who's managing the co- mm. communication, but behind the scene, there's an actual other party that's having a conversation and they're, they're getting a huge impact. Yeah. You know, and, you know, good agents would know that there's actually got to make both people happy if they're going to buy the property. And it happens a lot in like financial advice is, and one party, whether it's the male or the female, it's, it doesn't really matter, will contact me and then they'll say, look, I'll manage it for the, the family, et cetera, like that. And what I'll always have to do is kind of rewind. Nope, that's, that's, I know that's what you guys want to do, but we both we need to get you both there for the meeting. And then when that happens, uh, sometimes the, you know, the one party will do the talking and the other one won't. But in that scenario there, you've got to, you know, stop that person talking and then get, give the other person space and comfort and security to actually talk and get their opinion out because, you know, that's that's where you're actually going to, you know, build trust because if you haven't got trust, you can have trust with one side of a relationship, but if you haven't got trust with the other side because you haven't really built a relationship with them, um, you're kind of never going to build a trusted relationship because that person's always going to be doubting you, I guess. So mm. I think that's, you know, it is true and I think the best agents out there would probably understand that the woman has a huge part or the other, other way around if the woman's dealing with like, the man's having a huge impact. And so I think the best agents realise it's both. Yeah, Colin, you mentioned, yeah. you know, that you have buyer meetings in much the same way you have vendor meetings. Is that sort of what you do there? So that's what I was just going to lead into. And I think it depends on the marketplace. Um, and sometimes we do see a change, particularly in, um, and I probably won't say the marketplaces, but sometimes in more affluent areas, um, there, there may be someone that's a merchant banker or a CEO or something like that and, and you will see that individual, be it male or female, take control if that's more 
their personality. Mm. But the reason we encourage our buyer meetings, particularly with our agents, is exactly what you've just said, is if you get in front of a buyer and you start uh, judging body language and you see who's taking control or who's maybe sitting back and wanting to say say yeah. something, that's when the, the nuggets of gold come through. Um, and you can often see that. It's like 101 when I first got into the industry and, and my first coach said to me, you know, when you sit down at the lounge room table and you talk to people, make sure they're across from you and you can see the bloody language between yeah. the two. I think we've become such bloody keyboard warriors in the industry Agreed. with texting and email mm. that that element of face-to-face and communication, a lot of people need to be very careful they don't lose that because that's when we will become irrelevant and be taken over by disruption and noise Mm. but if we keep that face-to-face and as you would know being buyers agents and in in your space you have that relationship the eye contact monitor body language what personality type are they and we do a lot of work around that so it's a good result for us but also for the buyer and the vendor tell us about the work you do around personality types yeah we do we do our training and events calendars huge and uh, we do a lot of work around that personality profiling and making sure people understand what they are so when they communicate with people, and I wish I'd had that when I first went into sales because I'm very quick. What, what methodology do you use? Uh, we do a lot of disc and a lot of caliper. Um, so I think the salesperson understanding what they are first and foremost um, is important and then reading reading your clients, how they'd like to be communicated with, what's important to them, how much time they need because agents sometimes mm. can be really pushy to close the sale and, you know, if you try and do that with an SLC personality from a disc profiling, you're just going to get them offside and it doesn't matter what you say or what you offer, you you push them to, to close yeah. or make a decision and they're going to be like, like I'm married to a to a C and he researches, then he researches again and then he does a paper to, and then he wants to, to talk about I'm it. I'm trying to remember the disc. So that was the C is what we used to call conchy, conscientious people and S is sensitive. Sensitive yeah. and, and, they're, and they're very like slow and like to make a decision, Deliberate. very smart, mm. very analytical, mm. need all the facts, need to review it and yep. then need buy-in from other people and, so and then they'll probably go to a third party and get more mm-hmm. advice. And the disc is you sort of carve it in, in two halves, like the, there's the introvert and the extrovert. So the D and the I, the influencer and the director, this is usually going back to my psychology when I was in recruitment. So the influencer and director, right, they're the D and the I, or the I and the D, um, on the more of the extroverted side of the spectrum and on the influencer side, oh, sorry, the introverted side of the spectrum spectrum you've got your conscientious and your sensitive and so understanding that and 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 I guess as a buyer not even being that self-aware well, hopefully people are pretty self-aware they know where they might sit you know they obviously you're going to respond to that aren't you if somebody actually recognizes the signs you're giving you're more likely and that can be good for you as a buyer but it can also be manipulated right yeah look I, I think um you know, I think the cowboys and cowgirls will manipulate to that. But at the end of the day, if we want that client to stay with us for life, it's not about the one transaction. It's about mm. the three touch points. Mm. So, um, you know, I always said to my guys, how would you like your sister, your mother, your brother, your father treated in real estate? That's how we treat our clients. Mm. Um, one of our core values is, is family and that, that's both internal and external. And that's why our repeat referral rate is up over 70, 75% because we do treat people like they should be treated. And you deliver their information they want to hear in the way that they want to be dealt with, you know, like there's nothing worse than someone who's analytical and you're talking about things that aren't going to, you know, yeah. you know, they wait, at the end of the day, they want the facts and they want to know that this is what they're doing and this is the process. And, you know, if you keep talking about taking them off the direction, you're just going to annoy them, I guess, subconsciously. And, you know, you just lose a bias. So I think, you know, a lot of this profiling stuff, I think it's amazing because what you're actually doing is just helping the way you're dealing with someone and they're it getting a better outcomes. Yeah. yeah. And, and a lot of that time it's just motivating them to do something that's good for them. Um, I mean, I'm giving reflect- them permission to. Well, yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm reflecting with a client at the moment and, um, you know, he's extremely smart. He's, you know, he's tech background and, um, but he's very analytical, right? And I know that when we draft an email to him, he's going to read every single line and he's going to go across. And, and so, you know, me and my business partner, we are like, our emails are like so detailed. He loves them, but we know that that's, that's the key ingredient he wants. He wants to see this trail. And so, but, you know, with other clients, you know, they don't even want the email. Like they just want literally, where's it up to? <laughs> hey, Chris, how's it going? It's good. All on track. How much? How long? Yeah. yeah that's like- <laughs> it. And if I wrote them a long email, they're not going to read it. And they're going to, and they're going to feel Blaze like they over. should. Mm. And they're going to feel like they're letting me down by not reading the email. So I think it's so important to understand, you know, and then also be a bit self-reflective on who you are as well. Because, Absolutely. you know, mm. the way that you are is not what everyone else is. And you can very easily push your beliefs or the way you like to yeah. deal with things onto them. So very smart. Yeah. And I think too, also, like it's hard for buyers, right? Because, um, you know, an agent can sit in front and say, oh, we're trustworthy. We want to help you. Like they probably all say that. 
And I, I think it's hard for a buyer, like who who is that person that I do trust and I get information from? And I always say to my guys, remember emotional bank accounts. So I always say you must make three deposits before you ask for a withdrawal um, with mm. a buyer. So if someone comes through an open, don't just call them back and ask them what they thought of the property and get feedback for your vendor. What is it that you're providing them with? Are you, are you also helping them with what's on the market? What's what are they? Um, what's that property competing with? How does that compare to what they've seen? But also, like, give them the CMAs that we would give to our vendors around what's sold. Mm. If there's anything that's been relevant out in the media around interest rates, um, for example, or what's happening with a school catchment in that area, let them know. We're getting a lot of noise at the moment in our core markets around school catchment, catchments mm. and, and pricing going up where there's good schools. Um, and I, I think that's going to drive a lot of buyer behaviour in the next five to ten years. And I think people are really starting to assess what they pay for, for private education um, versus experience because we're all so busy. So I think we're going to see some big changes in there. But, but how do you know about school catchments for a buyer unless you ask them? Well, it's interesting actually that because, you know, I've got a whole bit of a theory on this. And I, I actually agree with you. As real estate becomes more and more expensive in these inner areas, what I think people are going to be starting to look at their at discretionary spend as, and also as it's more and more difficult to get finance. And the banks are now saying, well, you've got all these school fees. You can't actually afford to upgrade your home. People's decisions are going to be very different around schooling um, than they have been in the past. Because traditionally, and I'm sure you'll agree with me, you know, people are fairly comfortable to send their kids to a local public primary school. And then there's this mass evacuation at high school and at some key points during that that primary school journey as well, but particularly in year seven. And I'm doing the same thing. My daughter's going to a private high school, right? But she's gone to a public primary school. And I see that changing. I certainly see the same demographic in terms of my cohort or my daughter's cohort and the parents. And and there's quite a lot of them going to to public school and there's an attitudinal change. And so that's going to be very interesting. But the problem with that is that the school catchment areas and the sort of the the, the um, myth around individual schools, it, it's actually largely bullshit. And and I find that interesting from buyer's point of view, making decisions around buying a house because it's in a certain school catchment area and then that impacting on price. And then, then they can get their kid in that school and realise that culturally the kid doesn't fit or that a little school is actually not that great. You know, a big school would be better or vice versa. Do you know what I mean? So a lot of buyers have this, a, a huge amount of fear that's driving their decisions around where their kids go to school. I know we've gone a bit of a segue here, but I have a bit of an issue with catchment areas being the determinant of price and buyers feeding into that because I think it's a bit of a lie. I don't know what you think about that. Look, I'm a big believer that the wisest investment a parent can make is in their child's education, be it public or private school, whatever's going. I mean, we're incredibly lucky in Sydney that we've got so many great schools. Growing up 240 clicks from the nearest town, that wasn't something that I had the luxury of. (laughs) Um, But look, we are seeing it driving buyer behaviour and and prices. Mm. Yeah, and I mean, it makes sense whether that turns out to be the right school for that child though is what I think you're saying there yeah. is you know because they may not fit that school whether it's them you know the, what their, their type of you know what their naturally their strengths are or whether they're sport or you know in that they might decide to you know they might be you know gifted students or you know whether they're all bloody gifted but anyway uh, <laughs> uh, I guess we um you know they I mean might, they might have fi- found their gift whilst it's still at <laughs> well, school <laughs> I mean I didn't find mine while I was no. still at school. Were you not in a gifted class? No. <laughs> no. Anyway, uh, I mean, yeah, I think the whole schooling thing is quite funny. I mean, we're in Waterloo, right? And so if you were thinking about things with school catchments, you would have said, right, state government needs to build all the schools, great new high school coming to Surrey Hills. It's high level. It's going to be, you know, they're investing. High story. High story, uh, uh, you know, story whatever, vertical school, whatever it's called. It's got, a, you know, right near the city. Okay, we'll buy right near the school. And so you buy right near the school and then they release the catchment area, right? And what's pretty hilarious, which is not right, um, the state government just basically went, right, okay, we'll just draw this line. Yeah. And we'll just draw out all the areas that are low socioeconomic and basically we'll push it towards the city. Um, and so people who bought near the Surrey Hills News High School, um, right next to it, 100 metres, 200 metres, are not in the catchment area. So you've got to be really careful because catchment areas are never de- 
you know, set in stone. Well, they change. And, and also they, they will change year to year. And also the principles change and all of a sudden the, the popularity of that school changes. So it's a really dangerous yeah. thing. I think yeah. probably in areas like Surrey Hills that are expanding really quickly, a lot of our markets are more traditional and catchment zones in a lot of those areas haven't changed for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so, look, not to say it couldn't happen in our areas and probably will. That's a really good example and that would be really annoying as a buyer. Yeah. Um, but all I can say is from, from ours what we're, what we're seeing. Yeah. I'd love to talk to you about a, a bit of a conflict with real estate agents that, um, you know, it's, it's always out there. You mentioned that it's a really great time to buy for buyers and, you know, the in the areas that you work in, you know, the Lower East, the North, et cetera, premium suburbs, it's a great time to buy. How's the conversation going with the sellers though? Because the sellers, the buyers are like all very, you know, smart ones are going, well, yeah, it is actually a good time to buy. You, you just tell me what I want to hear. How are you <laughs> handling that conversation though with sellers? Because they're the ones who are freaking out right now. Like, you know, do we sell? Do we hold? Do we just, you know, upgrade? Like how are sellers behaving right now? And how is that much different to say six months ago? Can I start by saying, I think if it's right for you and your family and your personal situation, it's always a good time to buy. And in 10 years, it's irrelevant. Mm. Um, uh, but with our, with our vendors, look, we've got, we've got some prices in some of our core markets that have stayed the same. Yep. Um, that's not a general consensus across the board. Um, we are seeing Do 10 mean, to so, 20 to even 30% off in some areas. So you mean individual properties, some have stayed the same. Yeah, like premium premium properties that are, yeah. that are, that are well sought after um, ha- haven't moved that much, to be honest with you. It's mm. just that those properties have stopped coming to market. The stock to market is yeah. is right down. And um, this, first this thing. is really important. Just for listeners' point of view, we've had this same sort of conversation, a number of issue, uh, interviews over the over the last few months and is this idea of A-grade properties that are in short supply and high demand will retain value even when everything else is falling off a cliff. And I think you've just said exactly that. And part of that is is the demand, but part of that is the supply that the owners don't feel under pressure to sell. They know they've got a good asset and so therefore they just put a lid on it. Exactly right. Mm. Um, and I think too, like because there is so much media hype out there at the moment and there's no doubt the market's come off. Um, you know, we're not seeing at auctions what has been happening, the, the people through buyers, you know, it, we're not getting 30, 40 groups through opens anymore. You might get a handful. Um, so when you, when you meet a buyer that is ready to go, they're gold. Um, you hang on to them and that buyer relationship is is more important. And I think it's being honest and upfront with the clients from day one. You know, where, where are you moving to? So if someone's selling in a suburb and they're going to a suburb that is down a bit and they've got a take a 15 to 20% hit on their end, but they're saving 30% where they're moving to, mm. again, irrelevant. Mm. Um, but I think unless they've got the right financial advice or they're getting the right, yeah. um, you know, having the right conversation with their accountant or their broker, whoever it is, that's got to be put into perspective for them. Mm. Um, and it's very difficult for us because obviously you can't give financial advice, but we can give them a, a bit of an idea and guide them in that area. And a lot of buyers, because they only do it two or three times in their lifetime, they don't think about it like that. No, they don't. They don't think, okay, well, my, my monthly repayments are going to be this, but I'm moving to that area and I'm saving on there and I would never have been able to buy a $3.5 million home in that suburb, which is now probably three. Yeah. Um, and what does that mean for my family? Mm-hmm. So it's all relative and I think it's up to the agent to dive deep and mm-hmm. find what's really motivating that person, what the circumstances are and helping guide them through that. But it's it's different for everybody, mm-hmm. but the market is definitely, definitely softened. There is no mm-hmm. doubt about it. And you mentioned earlier on about, you know, the younger uh, or the, the newer entrants to the market. I'm always careful saying younger agents because they may not necessarily be young you know, chronologically, um, the newer entrants to the market, how, you know, their advantage in this case is their passion and drive that they're bringing in new ideas and whatever. So they're sitting in a lounge room with potential vendors. And, and, and I know, I hear a lot of sales agents, they're all very negative and all doom and gloomy. And some of them are quite experienced. And I'm actually quite surprised that they aren't keeping more of a level head, to be quite honest. Um, so I guess how do you have that conversation with somebody who is reading the papers and is is thinking that their, their property's fallen off a cliff like everything else? Um, and how do you keep a level head around that? I mean, also given that you're talking particularly in this example that you gave, you, you're talking about agents that haven't necessarily been around the block either. You know what I mean? They haven't dealt with downtimes and good times. How How does an agent do that? Look, I think our job is to negotiate and provide the best marketing strategy that we can to get it to the widest audience so everyone knows about the property. Um, agents forget that we don't determine market value. We mm. have nothing to do with what a house sells for. Um, we can try and get as much as we can for the client and bridge the gap, but we're there to negotiate, um, pump buyer and vendor for as much as we can so we can 
happy medium. Um, but we're there to make sure that they've got the best marketing options available to them in the marketplace and that no stone is left unturned. That's mm. our job. Our job's not to tell them what their house is worth. Mm. And I think that's where a lot of agents go wrong. So we really focus on that, whether they're new agents or existing agents, is we can guide, but at the end of the day, willing buyer, willing seller, that determines market value, not us. Yeah. But then you are doing the appraisal and you are actually giving them some guidance in terms of what to expect. You know what I mean? Because, and it's funny, so many of, of the people that we've interviewed, and I remember one in particular, you and Morton, and he was like, you know, you know, buyers and sellers now, they've got all this information at their fingertips, they're educated, they're smart, they work it out for themselves, but that doesn't take into account the elephant, the, the emotion and the fact that I want my house to be worth more than that, you know. And that's a real challenging thing in any market. It's it's certainly in a rising market. It's probably in, in some regards more challenging because everyone thinks everything sells at a premium. But how are you, you know, so you're not determining what it's going to sell for. You're not determining what the market will or won't pay, but you are giving them guidance in terms of what your expectations are given what you know about them. So how do you reconcile that? Yeah, look, I find the whole thing hilarious and that's why I lobby a lot for legislation and and changes with um, some things that come out from government because Mm. that 10% variance that an agent has to give now with quoting price, the most Mm. ridiculous legislation that ever came out, um, you know, valuers aren't even dictated by that and they've got got a degree and more qualifications and formulas and... Mm. um, so to be able to say within a 10% science what a house will go for is insane. Yeah, exactly. Um, look, all we can do is, is give them like what's happening in the local market, what, what we're seeing factual. happening. Factual. Keep it fact, keep the emotion out of it because we will not determine the price. Mm. Um, and then we can guide them and then they can go and engage a valuer or they can go and talk to their finance or their, um, or their bank around what they pay. We're not telling them what they've got to pay. We're just guiding them. Yeah, I think the hard thing is is that I just, you know, if you're an agent and you you're sitting in there, you know, you get a call, I want to sell, market's going to crash. Like there was an article at the AFR the other day. I'm <laughs> selling to beat the crash, you know, and it was a poor property, so I don't yeah, blame it. Yeah, sometimes they um, need to. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think, but in good assets, you know, and I think as, you know, an agent, you, you know, on the on the selling side, to be that true trusted advisor, you've kind of got to say, look, I know you want to sell. I know you want to beat this market crash, but, you know, market's not doing very well and maybe it's not a great time to sell, but then you may be ruling yourself out of a sale. And I guess it's it's just... Where do you, you know, put your moral compass, I guess, from, uh, you know, because then on the other side, you're going to be open house and you're going to be able to buy. It's a great time to buy. But the only way you've got that property on the market is to sell. And I think it's just really interesting to see how you're, you're managing. If, if it's a home upgrader, then, yeah, it's pretty easy to make sense. I guess it's when you've got investors that have got little, you know, reasonable assets, but they not really probably a great time just to be rushing it to the market, you know. Um, yeah, how, did, how does Guy Jones kind of deal with that, I guess? Look, we've always had an ethos that we don't want to be the agent with the most boards in the marketplace that don't sell. Yeah. Mm. Um, there's nothing worse than an agent that just goes and lists and buys, buys listings. Um, so for us, again, there's a whole complete day to talk about what we do around that side of things. But at the end of the day, we get to, say, a three-month exclusive with a client and we haven't sold it and we've overpromised, then we've, that relationship's gone. Yeah. So um, it's just it's being upfront from the start mm. and letting them know what it's like and you know some if if it's not a huge margin that we that they're over and again who are we to dictate but if we've got an idea that they're way over we'll walk away from the business but if they're w- within a range that we believe is possible and we'll be really honest we'll say look we'll go out there and try and get it but if it's not there then in you know two weeks time we're going to sit down and have a conversation are you okay with that and if the client says yes then we'll move forward but if they're pie in the sky then yeah. we're not the agent for them it's not how we operate yeah well that's probably those doom and gloom agents you're talking about they're probably going in there and saying look you do need to sell things could sell yeah, they you know are. and i you knew you need to hit the market and they're just trying to get it on the market and they're probably overpromising because well, once I actually it's don't listed think they do it's a bit weird there because you know you get you know this there's a typical agent you know, that, that hasn't been around for very long. He thinks that's the only way you're going to get a listing is you go in and flatter the owner. But those doom and gloom agents aren't doing that. They're actually going in there and they're trading on the actual fear that, look, you know, mate, I know you thought your your place was worth a million last year. Well, it ain't. Now it's worth 900. And if you don't get on the market right now, it's going to be worth 850 before you blink and you better hurry up because mm. falling off a cliff is going to be worth 800 and it's just your race to the bottom. You need to get on the market now. That's what they're playing on. So rather than saying, oh, yeah, you're going to get 1.1, you know, and that's that's the sort of conversation that's changing. And I haven't actually, you know, I've been around, what, nearly 20 years. And, and to be honest, and I've been around a few ups and downs, and I've actually not seen so much doom and gloom from agents as I'm seeing now and hearing now. And I'm, like, scratching my head looking at them and going, you guys are idiots. You, you're basically uh, to, you're talking yourself 
out of an in, you know, out of a out of a job. But not only that, you're actually talking out of your own experience right now. You're not actually pulling out of that at all and looking at what happens in markets. There are cycles. What happens if you've got a good asset? You know, you're not actually being in any way discerning or giving that person good advice, you know, or, or you might have helped them buy the thing in the first place in 2015 and you know they paid too much um, and you're basing you know, your advice to them is like, oh, it's already lost this much money. It's actually, no, it didn't actually lose money. You just paid too much in the first place. You know what I mean? Like there, yeah. there's there's so many ways to have a more robust conversation around this stuff rather than, and I'm telling some some very smart agents that I've always respected have been having these, con- these doom and gloom conversations. It's shocking me. Yeah, I mean, you've got to be extremely careful whenever you're getting advice from someone who's a doom and gloomer. And the other way, you know, someone who's always overly positive. <laughs> overly positive, you know, and it's, 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 you know, for anyone, if it's a financial advisor, if it's a, you know, a doctor or whatever it is, whoever it is, if someone's giving you really doomful information, you've got to really make sure that it's a really short term business model because you're going to probably get it wrong. You know, the market's probably not going to go as crazy as you think. And, um, you know, and people loved and it plays and it gets people acting. So you've got to, you know, whether you're sitting in front of an agent and they're being like that, you know, my advice would be getting in front of other agents, right? And getting multiple kind of points of, you know, listen, I just want to reflect on, I heard a bit of an interesting thing yesterday from a buyer's agent um, that real estate agents sometimes in areas um, will buy market share by undercutting other agents for the first few months of the year to get um, runs <laughs> on the board. You're talking and about fees, selling fees. fees. Yeah. yeah, so like, yeah. you know, let's say I'm working in, I don't know, let's just call it Eastern Suburbs, right? Because I know Joe Jones got stuff in Eastern Suburbs. But I'm not, I'm losing out because I haven't got much market share. So what I could do is for January, February, March, offer 1% commissions when everyone else is offering 2% commissions, <laughs> get some listings, get some runs on the board, get some buyers, and then from March onwards, I'll start going back to 2%. Have you heard of that happening in real estate? Yeah, for about the last 26 years. Um, <laughs> look, I think in some markets that's definitely more active. Um, uh, than, than other markets. I think the other thing too is it's very it's it's a very dangerous place to go as an agent. You put yourself as a bottom feeder, very hard to get out of that space. Um, and I think there's other strategies if you're launching a new area and you're agent that you could work on and it might be marketing packages or unique selling proposition or your commitment schedule that is a money back guarantee or something like that where you where you're not affecting, you know, your ability to to earn an income. And people don't want the cheapest. I will argue this all day long. Mm. Um, they want the best service, the best experience, know that they're gonna have open communication. And a great way to obviously tap into that is, well, what's been your past experience? Mm. And um, people are happy to, I believe, people are happy to pay a premium, pay for a service if they know they can be guaranteed of an outcome. Problem in our industry is how do you know that when you partner yeah. with someone from the start? So we work with our guys a lot on money back guarantees, commitment schedules that that we enter into. So if we're going to put our money where our mouth is, mm. then the client's assured of the result. So what do you offer them money back guarantee on their marketing dollar? Yeah, look, there's all like we're open depending on each situation, but you know, we we leave that up to our agents to negotiate. But like an mm. example of one that we did yesterday was a client had had terrible communication in the past and said that they were going to get calls the same day that they had an open, they were going to be notified of every offer, and it didn't happen. So we just went in and said, well, would you feel comfortable if every time we failed to deliver that, or if we failed to deliver on that, it's X Y Z off your marketing or your commission? And they're like, would you do that? Why wouldn't we do it? Mm. <laughs> you know, the simple yeah. things rather than going in and prostituting you prostituting yourself at 1.1 or 1.5, mm. which, you know, the bottom feeders will do and they will always do and have always done. It's interesting. Yeah. You haven't actually then addressed their, their real fear anyway if you've just dropped your, your fee. Exactly. You know, really. Yeah. yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned earlier that you've given presentations to Parliament House. What on? Uh, so year before last, um, there was a few of us on the REI board and then a few industry leaders from across Australasia um, that really believe that we we need to change how the real estate industry is governed and um, a lot of the legislation that goes with that and the professional development. Um, so we went and spoke at Parliament House around what we think we can do as an industry and what also government can do um, to make it better for the consumer. So um, it was a very lengthy day. It was about 12 speakers. Um, I, I was the only female, which was great, um, from the point of view that um, I probably came across um, a lot of the guys spoke about high-level legislative stuff, whereas I was like, the consumer just wants to know 
A, B and C mm. and they want to be reassured. So talk about things like, you know, like, like maybe a hotline um, that can be manned by like neutral party or, or maybe high-level professional agents that have a barrier to entry are on there and we take questions or Q&A like, like this type of thing. Yep. So obviously we've got the Real Estate Institute um, that lobby for the industry, but really who is out there lobbying for the consumers? Yeah, it's and a good yes, point. you have offers of we fair are. trading. <laughs> um, <laughs> but at the end of the day, I think, you know, they've got, you know, the, the minister for our particular area has got such a big remish. Um, I don't know how he does what he does. Um, but the fact that our industry turns over more than the mining industry means that we should probably take it a little bit more seriously. And I don't know that I know what the answer is, but I think it's time to really have a look at it. Did the words Royal Commission get mentioned at all? Not at that time because there wasn't a huge amount of airtime around it. It was just prior to that. Mm. Um, certainly gets a lot of airtime these days, yes. Yeah, I mean, they happen in threes, <laughs> don't they? So, you know, we've got the financial services, the banks, you've got aged care. I mean, I think this Opal disaster, and um, it's quite hilarious. If you did listen to one of our previous episodes, um, yeah, we mentioned Opal before Opal came out because they were doing things a little bit differently to some developers. Yes. And uh, But anyway, I mean, Opal's just the canary in the coal mine, really. So, mm. uh, you know, and consumers want better answers. They want better products. They want better relationships. They don't want to feel like they're signing up to their biggest investment of their life, you know, as buy beware. Like basically you're buying a car sometimes they feel like. So I guess, um, you know, do you think that, that would be a good idea to have a Royal Commission into property? Uh, look, I, I don't know if another Royal Commission's the answer. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm particularly blessed, I guess, with, you know, clients when, when I was in sales that still ring me for advice now and, and family and friends that, um, are very smart in, in, in great positions. But some of the questions they ask me about real estate, I kind of scratch my head and go, really, you, you want to know that? And they're some of the smartest people I know. So if they want to know that, what does the average Joe Blow want to know about real mm. estate? And where are they getting that advice? Because a lot of people don't have people like us that they can turn to yeah. to ask advice. Mm. So I think there needs to be some service offering around that, given it's it's such a large revenue chunk for the state government in particular. Mm. But But where do they really go? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's the problem is that uh, the government probably doesn't want it because it's such a large revenue raiser for the government. So it's kind of like, you know, you're only shooting yourself in the foot if you um, start to bring regulation into property. And I think that's the the big thing is that government are probably going to put themselves first over the consumers who are getting the poor outcomes because they're the ones holding the poor asset, you know, or they're the ones who are losing buying poor assets or they're the ones who are having to pay the stamp duty and the, 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 the pay a huge amount for a house and land package when they shouldn't. And so... You know, there's so many things out there that um, you know, I don't think the government really want to stir. Yeah, and look, it, it, it probably comes back to industry and there's a few of us trying to drive at the moment becoming a professional body um, just like you have for architects and solicitors and yeah. and doctors and things like that. And, that, and that's a massive task and there, there's about 12 of us undertaking that and we've been working on that for two years now and we'll so, continue to work on that. Yeah, we interviewed John Cunningham on that. Uh, I can't remember exactly what it was. Yeah, on. so John's Within the driving the first... force. It was his brainchild. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Yeah. And which is fantastic and I'm an absolute supporter of the pathway to professionalism, you know, from the industry and a lot of the things that you're talking about in terms of your business, you know, obviously um, align with that very clearly. I'm interested in actually your survey that you surveyed uh, consumers out there and and a thousand consumers. Is that a report that is available? No. <laughs> so, we look, we've used that for, um, for internal purposes. Mm. Um, we uh, are very big on our net promoter score and, and continuing to, to monitor that. And that was a part of, a part of that. We also want to see how our um, competitors were performing in relation to response times. Mm. Um, what came out of it was that consumers are very frustrated with agents' response time to inquiry. Um, and I just don't think that's acceptable given the money that we're paid yeah. um, across the board. And we just did Metropolitan Sydney. Um, they're, they're also um, sick of agents just showing them through houses. Um, was a big thing that came out when they get to a property, they just want to go through the property and have a and have a look at the property. What they want is more, as you said, advice around well, guiding us as to where should we start um, yeah. if we're going to bid at auction. What does that look like? Um, but I mean, I guess there's Warren Buffett famous saying isn't that when the tide goes out you can see who's swimming naked and you know <laughs> fundamentally right now you're going to see that right because you know the 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 good agents you know, the response time is there, you know, like, you know, because there's not many buyers and, you know, the, the agents that were just kind of rocking up and had third, you know, open and could sell it, that's just not happening now. So the agents have had to pick up their game. I imagine. So if you did this report now, I think you'd probably find that 
response time's probably much better. And yeah, I've yeah, noticed we, that in my business. <laughs> we, we keep monitoring it, but I think it's um, you might get one response to if you go through an open home, for example. Everyone gets phoned on Monday or gets sick of being phoned on Saturday. Um, something we try and get our guys to do is have an eight-point nurturing plan with buyers. So if you meet a buyer for the first time, then here's what the next eight points of contact should look like. And but there's, there's buyers and there's buyers, right? There's people that are just looking at the house and they're never going to be buying it. Um, there's those that are never buying anything. They just love looking at houses. There's those that are just telling their bro- <laughs> their, their their actual uh, search and, and so it's just the early days. There's those that go through it and never going to buy it because it's not right for them. And then there's the, a buyer who's buyer with a capital B and probably highlighted that, oh, they might be a contender for this property. You know what I mean? So I'm just drawing that distinction you're not going to have an eight-point plan with every single one of those people that go through a property, right? Yeah, I think, look, the, the question that we get our guys, and it's, it's really hard, are you a buyer or yeah. are you browsing? Yeah. yeah. But that one question is, yeah. is really big for us. We also do a lot with subliminal stuff when people come through opens, um, things that we leave on the bench, for example. So if we know someone walks out with the blue folder, that is <laughs> if you're thinking about selling or different things and we see that in their hand, then that probably tells us they're thinking about selling. Yeah, it's like little asterisks yeah, going on the, li- on the- <laughs> You know, little things like that. But again, uh, you know, one, one of the things that we try and drill into our team is got a client that we want at Guy Jones, someone that owns a home. Yep. Whether they're selling now, or they're selling later, um, you know, if they live in Sydney and they're at a dinner party on Saturday night and they're talking about the experience that they had with Kylie Walsh at Di Jones and it's the fact that she's contacted me eight times, then great. How was that experience? And it's going to be awesome. I think that's a really smart way to do it because as soon as you start going down the other route, you start, you can get it wrong. You, you've come across as a browser, but you're not a browser, you're a buyer. And as soon as you start to assume and you start to categorize people, you start changing your servicing offering. Exactly right. And then you actually, and it's very easy to make a mistake because the buyer could be retaining their browsing. Oh, yeah, I live next door. And passive buyers pay the premium for property always. Let's just stop for a minute. This is the elephant in the room. (laughs) Passive buyers pay a premium for property always. Love this. Can just quickly elaborate on that. And we might turn this into the buyer boot camp. Elephant yeah. Rider Boot Camp for this episode. We haven't got to Dumbo yet. We're changing the order a bit. Tell us why. Uh, look, we we still believe in print. Um, and look, there's definitely a place for social for active buyers. Um, and you know, everyone's on real estate or domain or the major portals. Um, but you know, research just shows us over and over again and our case studies that when someone's sitting in a coffee shop on Saturday and they're going through and they're like, Oh my God, I love that house. I didn't know it was on the market. I've always wanted that property or they're looking to downsize and then an apartment catches their eye in print and they, Oh, maybe I will sell mine and downsize. And they come to a property. I don't know what it is, but they're always the ones that pay a premium. Yeah. And, and I think behind that is the fact that they they happen to be browsing, just not actually looking for property and an image has caught their eye and there's something that triggers the elephant within. But yeah. there's somebody who's actively looking will be constantly valuing and, and assessing anything that they see and putting it into context of everything else that's around. And because the, the buyer, the passive buyer who's just browsing and happens to trip over something that just really appeals to them, they haven't had the time or that background or that investment uh, in their own uh, search up to that point. So therefore, they have no relativity. Is that pretty yeah. much what you're saying? Uh, yes, a lot of the time. And I think also too, it's it's what I said of sometimes people go, I wasn't aware that that was on the market because I'm not searching the portals. Um, but it's like, we see so many buyers pay a premium and see a property for auction 72 hours prior. And yeah. over the years I've heard a lot of green agents go, oh, they wouldn't possibly buy it. It's only the day prior, the morning of. And I'm like, yep. they're the ones. They do. That's mm. your buyer. Mm. Go and yeah, show them. Yeah, well, I mean, it's double, yeah. double whammy sometimes. So a client bought a property in Lilyfield just before Christmas and um, uh, based through a buyer's agent. And then that basically. Not got, through us, by the no, way. No, not through good deeds. <laughs> um, and um, they knew the buyer's agent before they met me. Uh, and. Um, no, but the reason they got that property was interesting because that property was never on the market. They bought it off market. But the reason that market came on, that property came on the market was the buy, the seller had found their dream home and then thought now was the perfect time to upgrade. But the property that they wanted to buy was going to auction that next weekend. And so they weren't going to sell their property unless they sold it before the weekend. So on the Monday, they listed their property for sale. They sold it on the Tuesday for a discounted price without doubt, from what was going on in the market. <laughs> and then on the Saturday they bought another property for more expensive than probably that was worth because they got excited at them. Oh, that's the auction. a golden, flawed thinking. That's so just double whammy, isn't in it? In yeah. seven days, you look at it, 
Overpaid and undersold. <laughs> overpaid and undersold. And it's like, wow. And so then what they must have happened is, I don't know, they might have been driving past the property, banks or the for sale sign, didn't mm. realise it for sale. But within a week, they'd sold and bought and they probably lost out twice. And I was just like, wow, like... Obviously, you weren't an active buyer. Obviously, you you know you didn't know what your house was really worth. You didn't know what that was really worth because you've just cut yourself out hundreds of thousands of dollars. Every week, we hear incredible stories of the dumb things property buyers do. Dumb things that end up costing a whole lot of money and or creating a whole lot of stress. Mistakes that can be avoided. Please, Kylie, can you give us an example of a property dumbo? We can all learn what not to do from these stories. Yeah, look, without names or suburbs or dates or times, um, (laughs) something I consistently see is my absolute classic favourite is my sister said or my brother said and someone has been looking for three months, six months, nine months. They've found the dream home. They've got a list of ten things that suit them. They tick off eight. I'm like, you're not going to find better than that. It's amazing. And they put in an offer, we're negotiating back and forth, and I spoke to my sister. She's a nurse or she's a teacher, nothing to do with real estate. <laughs> and then they take the advice of someone outside the industry for their dream home, for their family, for the next however many years. And I've seen person after person miss property and I'm running to them five years later and they're like, we cannot believe we didn't buy Smith Street in Paddington. It's still our dream home. We should never listen to our sister or brother or uncle or whatever. I think you can get too much advice when you're looking to buy um, and you just have those people that you really believe in and you trust and you've done your research. You don't need to talk to everybody about it. If that's what, if, <laughs> so that's, true. if that's the property that you want <laughs> and it ticks the boxes or yeah. it ticks 80% of the boxes, buy it because you're not going to do any better than that. And as I've said before, in 10, 15, 20 years' time, it's irrelevant. It also, it taps back into what we discussed in episode 46 with Lorna Patton about this idea of not good enough. So if I don't really feel that I'm good enough to make that decision all by myself, and it's a big thing, let's face it, but really rather than go to other people and just seeking reassurance from people that really don't know any better than you, uh, in fact don't know as much as you. Or don't even own property. Yeah, all that too. You know, don't don't seek reassurance from those type of people. Go and get advice from a professional. (laughs) It's exactly right. And you see it time and time again. Yeah, Yeah, and unfortunately a lot of that time you want validation Mm. and you don't get it and then they, unfortunately, they're trying to, you know, that's easy for them to say yes. And sometimes yeah. they say, no, have you thought about this? And they just start that element of doubt and then that can, they can sleep on it. And they're, you know, you're right. They, they're starting to act completely emotional. The problem is, this is what wedding planning does to you. You, you realize that um, if you ask for an opinion, you got to hear it. And, um, and if you don't like that opinion, you've already asked for it. And so now you've got to tell that person, well, I don't really appreciate your opinion. Um, and so it's this situation again, yeah. you know, like you asked your sister or your mother or your brother or your, your friend at work, you know, what do you think of this property? Um, and then they say, I don't like it. Right? You doesn't really got, help you, does it? Well, it doesn't help. And you've now got to say, hey, mate, More I still noise. bought it. More noise, I've still yeah. bought it. And you've just created it. So you've got to be really careful when you ask for opinions um, and make sure that, you know, if they do give their opinion, it's coming from a good place and it's actually valid because you're probably creating more mess than. And I think putting it into perspective, you know, like I, I watch people, it's, yes, I'm a loser, but at Harvey Norman or Good Guys on the weekend and I see them negotiating on a TV or a fridge and <laughs> I sit there the and, I, and I look at it and I look at the percentage that they're negotiating over for that, mm. for that product. And as a percentage of the total price, and I think, isn't it funny? A lot of people do more negotiation over a fridge and a TV mm. and, in my opinion, pay more of a percentage premium than what they are going to pay than they will for a home. Yes, and, in fact, one of my old colleagues years ago and I was selling, turned to me one day, I still remember this, she says, oh, she got off the phone after talking to a buyer and said, oh, my God, some people spend more time researching a toaster than they do a house. Mm. And, you know, so it's the flip side of that. It's when they don't negotiate at all, when they just completely fall in love and are blissfully unaware of anything that could go wrong. In they go. And you got to love buyers like that, don't you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, just understanding what, what the trend is, don't look at the last 12 months or the next 12 months, is if you're going to live there for 10 or 15 years, have a look at 10 or 15 years and what that, and what that looks like. So, um, problem is that'll stop you negotiating because you'll be like, oh, well, it's going to go up. <laughs> you know, it's gone up so much. You start to go, oh, actually, it's made up, it's got up 150% in the last 10 years. And then you go, oh, yeah, I don't really need to get a good price today. And then that's kind of defeats the purpose of negotiation, right? You've got to be like, well, I've got to get a good price today. 
Well, I think, I mean, I'm, I'm just looking at myself, for example, and I'm, I'm pretty experienced in the industry. And even we, you know, we make mistakes and, and, and listen to noise. So there's a house in uh, Chilton Road in Willoughby that in 2011 I should have bought. And the agent at the time that I was talking to is like, you know, it's, it's so close to the city. And this is what I'm talking about, areas that are that are popular and mm. will never kind of go through the, the floor and they'll stay stable. And um, that, that property I could have bought for 1.67 then and is 3.6 every day of the week now. So I think it's it's relative, um, and people just can't be short sighted. Is probably what I was saying mm, yeah. in their investment and what and what they're going to pay. Um, but yeah, stop getting so much advice. If you like it, go for it. It's always a good time to buy if the property is right for you. Yeah, yeah. Get a good buyer's agent. You could do that too, of course. Now, listen, thank you so much for your time, Kylie. It's been a very interesting chat. To be honest, I think we started off and I thought we were going to be really just sort of talking about really men and women in the industry and, you know, um, how you've seen changes over the years. And I had a whole bunch of questions here. But instead, we covered, oh, what did we cover? God, we, we talked about the bush, we talked about transparency, we talked about consumer technology. expectations, technology, we talked about where the industry is going, we talked about legislation. We covered an enormous gamut uh, and really appreciate your time and your frankness. Thank you. I've had a ball. Thank you. Cheers. <laughs> Don't forget that you can access the transcript for this episode on theelephantintheroom.com.au and don't forget to download our free full or forecaster report. Which experts can you trust to get it right? Get the report and find out. Please join us for our next episode when we interview Karen Stiles, who is the Executive Director of the Owners Corporation Network. Now, the Owners Corporation Network, or OCN, is a body that is in existence to help represent the interests of strata owners. And why do they need representation? Well, listen to this episode because Karen has some very interesting stories that illustrate why owners are buying into a system where everyone else seems to know the rules, but they don't. Now, I'll let that hang there because it's a really important episode all about the risks of buying strata property. Now, we're not bagging strata property, but you need to know the risks and it's a very, very enlightening episode. Don't forget we're on all the social channels. We're on Facebook, we're on LinkedIn, we're on Twitter. Or you can connect with us on theelephantintheroom.com.au. The links are all there for you. Please connect and send us a message. We'd love to hear from you. The Elephant in the Room Property Podcast is recorded at the Sydney Sound Brewery. This week's podcast was recorded by John Resk, editorial by Gordy Fletcher. Until next week, don't be a dumbo. Now remember, everything we talked about on this podcast is general in nature and should never be considered to be personal financial advice. If you're looking to get advice, please seek the help of a licensed financial advisor or buyer's agent who will tailor and document their advice to your personal circumstances with a statement of advice.